Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Rob Andrews, and I'm privileged to be the moderator for today's discussion. We want to thank the Hudson Institute for uh, their hosting this event today and making it possible. A characteristic of the Institute, we hope that you leave uh, today's presentation with a, a new understanding of some very important issues and facts and are provoked to work out your own positions in the course of what you hear. We're here to accomplish three things this afternoon. Uh, the first is to disabuse you of a couple of notions about the excise tax. The second uh, is to hear from a really intriguing and wide variety of views as to what the excise tax means and why it's good or why it's not. And then the third is to uh, encourage you to think about your own positions, your own scholarship, your own research, your own commentary on this issue as we go forward. The two notions that we want to disabuse you of are that this is an issue for 2018 and that this is an issue that falls into the regular and ordinary categories of political dispute. The panel will completely disprove uh, both of those things in the next couple of minutes. As far as this being uh, a 2018 issue, sort of the sense that we're premature by being here today, I would point to the recent negotiations with the port workers in California, which, which wrapped up just a few weeks ago. And one of the major points in that negotiation was how to handle the excise tax uh, on the benefit package that those uh, workers had in that situation. Uh, my understanding is that the, the benefit package for many of those employees is in the range of in excess of $35,000 a year for family coverage. So it clearly uh, it implicated the issues associated with the excise tax. The consequence of that negotiation, which again concluded, so this, this is an issue that is very real and very important at this very moment, was the two sides took an exposure that was reported as being $150 million and negotiated it down to $60 million. Now, this leads me to my second point. Uh, the ordinary political categorizations don't really apply to this. And when we ask the questions like, how did we get from 150 to 60? Who paid for the 90? You know, who's going to pay for the 90? What does it mean to people's benefits? There's a lot of information buried in the answer to those questions. And so the panel this afternoon shows the diversity of opinions about those questions. We have people normally aligned with the Democratic or progressive side, one generally supporting the idea of the tax and one opposing it. People ordinarily aligned with the Republican or conservative side, one opposing the idea of the tax, one supporting it. Uh, we hope that what this discussion does, again, is to enrich people's understanding, provoke more thought, but most of all, convey this message that waiting until 2018 is not the way to approach this issue. If you favor the tax, you need to be out there defending the, your position as to why you do. And if you oppose the tax, uh, already it is having a significant impact on corporate and union and public sector and many, many other decisions that are going on across the country. So we're very pleased that we have four outstanding people to address these issues. The way we're going to proceed this afternoon uh, is that each of our four panelists is going to very briefly and succinctly uh, summarize his position on the issue and the reasons for his position. Uh, we're then going to proceed to discussion among the panel. I'm going to try to be uh, a friendly devil's advocate. Uh, having served in the House for 24 years, I advocated for the devil on a regular basis, so I feel very <laughs> comfortable doing that. And we're going to try to evoke uh, some learning out of that discussion. Then we're going to turn for the last 15 minutes or so of the session to questions from the audience. We would invite you to raise whatever questions you'd like. Uh, the one admonition that I would give you on that is that we will actively encourage questions and actively discourage speeches. Uh, if, if you want to ask one of the panelists something, we'd love to hear that. Uh, but we really do not want filibustering. That's for another institution elsewhere in the city that is always unproductive. Um, Old house habits die hard. Our four panelists, Bill Samuel is the Director of Government Affairs for the AFL-CIO. And in that capacity, he chairs their legislative committee, which is made up of all the different union affiliates, all different sectors across the country. 
Um, Paul Vandewater has extensive experience in healthcare policy at the CBO, uh, at the Social Security Administration, and he's now a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Has done terrific work there over the years in that. Dr. Paul Howard is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, has written extensively and is writing really on a daily basis in the blogs extensively, not just on the excise tax, but on an extensive range of health care issues when it comes to FDA reform. He and I were just talking about the cures legislation that uh, is moving through the House at this point. Paul is a novel and creative thinker that I know will add a great deal to our panel. And finally, my friend and colleague, Dr. Tevi Troy, who is president of the American Health Policy Institute, who served as in the Department of Health and Human Services as the Deputy Secretary, is that right, Tevi? That is right. And extensive White House experience as well. So we have a variety of views and a variety of backgrounds, and I think we'll learn a lot by listening. We're going to start by asking Bill Samuel uh, from the AFL-CIO to commence our proceeding. Bill? Okay, thank you, uh, Congressman. Can you all hear me? I guess so. Not, not very well. Got to move this closer. Um, pleasure to be here. It's, uh, I hope for the next 60 minutes not to be thinking about the uh, uh, President's trade agenda and our <laughs> battle to defeat fast track, so I, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I, I feel a little bit like I'm deep in enemy territory here at the Hudson Institute, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, the labor movement's investment in health reform, as most of you know, probably goes back a century. Um, the AFL-CIO uh, has, uh, and, and the uh, prior uh, incarnations of organized labor in the country, fought for decades uh, to provide health care for ordinary citizens, for workers, whether they're mine workers or teachers or sanitation workers, uh, to lower the cost of health care, to make it accessible um, for every American. And that, of course, was the goal of the Affordable Care Act uh, in 2008 when President Obama, t 2009 when President Obama took office. The goal of reducing the number of uninsured by 25 million or more was, was essentially met, provide access to medical care and good financial protection so the cost of care wouldn't affect, wouldn't uh, wreck household budgets. The, as many of you know, we fought bitterly uh, against the excise tax. We didn't think it, it uh, really had a place in health reform where we were trying to lower the cost of health care uh, and expand access. Uh, the irony, obviously, of the excise tax being included in the ACA um, is that the explicit purpose of the policy is to make uh, health care less affordable uh, by reducing what is considered by some to be excess insurance. And I think that really shows, to, to me at least, the, the lack of connection with the real world um, that a lot of policymakers in Washington have, the idea that somehow Americans are overinsured, they overutilize the health care system. I'm not sure there's really evidence, and I think if you travel around the country and meet with ordinary citizens, they probably won't uh, understand what you're talking about, that they go to the doctor too often. Most Americans avoid going to the doctor either because it's too expensive or because it's unpleasant. Um, so the notion that somehow we have, to, we have to put in place a policy which discourages employees, uh, workers, uh, from going to the doctor um, doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Um, we tax cigarettes uh, in order to keep people from smoking. I don't think the point of taxing health care is to keep people from going to the doctor, but in fact that is likely to be the impact. Employers are looking at this tax. Um, in some cases, it can it can be uh, uh, can take you know quite quite a toll on their bottom line. And the result, of course, is going to be they're going to go to their employees and say that we got to we have to raise deductibles or copays. We've got to do something to avoid this tax. That that is going to uh, that goes right at the employees, the consumers of health care, the workers. And my guess is, if they have higher copays and higher deductibles, they're going to go to the doctor less less often. That has been the um, the case uh, uh, in the past. If they go less often, you're either going to have people who are sick when they don't need to be, or you're going to have people spending more money in, in emergency rooms. So as a policy matter, this just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. And uh, the House did not include it in their bill, as for those of you who followed closely, the Senate did for a variety of reasons. I'm not sure I understand all of them. Uh, and then we had a furious uh, negotiation uh, with the White House to try to get it out, or at least delay it, and we succeeded in delaying the tax till 2018, which seemed a long way away in <laughs> 2009, and here, here we are just uh, a little over two years from it, and I'll just conclude by saying it is already having an impact in our bargaining. We have companies that are bargaining three-year contracts with Congressman uh, 
Andrew's mentioned the uh, longshore uh, workers in uh, uh, out in the West Coast. I think I think that's a uh, that's a four or five year contract, but it clearly covers the period of 2018 when the um, when this excise ta- tax takes effect, and we know from other companies um, that they are they are looking very hard at this. And the final thing I'll say is that there is also an economic theory, I guess, that if healthcare costs are lower, then employers are going to make up for that by raising the wages of their workers. This is another example of where healthcare economists uh, need to get out into the real world. We, we, we bargain contracts at the, uh, in, in the labor movement and obviously in the non-union context we're not bargaining the employers are making decisions on their own without anybody across the table and the notion that if they can save a buck in health care that they're going to give a buck back to the employees in wages when wages haven't gone up for 20 years is, is really nonsense it's it's uh, it, it's, it's a, maybe a good theory but it has no basis in fact bill thanks very much we, we truly do appreciate you being here at such a crucial time on the issues you're working on paul welcome we're glad you're on the, the panel thanks um, well, I'd like just to make a, uh, make a few points. Uh, first of all, the, we have to keep in mind that the, reason we, the, the first reason we have this tax is to help pay for health reform. We don't have taxes just for the sake of having taxes. We want them to pay for certain things. And one of the key features of the Affordable Care Act was the goal that uh, it not add to the deficit. And this is one of a number of taxes that helped uh, achieve that particular goal. But secondly, in addition to that, uh, the tax is uh, an important tool for slowing the growth of health care spending. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office has identified uh, limiting the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored uh, health insurance as being one of the two most uh, powerful policy levers that the federal government has for encouraging changes in medical practice and ways to make it more efficient. And as such, the inclusion of the tax in the uh, Affordable Care Act was uh, critical to CBO reaching its uh, conclusion, particularly that the Affordable Care Act would reduce the deficit by an amount equivalent to about a half a percent of GDP during its second decade. Uh, And finally, um, I'll disagree with uh, Bill's point. We can discuss this later, but... uh, uh, virtually without exception from whatever point on the political spectrum, economists, health economists, labor economists, all agreed that over some period of time that slower growth in uh, the fraction of compensation that goes to health care spending will mean more rapid growth in workers' take-home pay. Now, another point I'd like to make is that this tax is uh, initially not going to affect very many health plans. Substantially fewer plans than originally expected Uh, and substantially fewer than some are alleging. Uh, In fact, by the the best estimates, uh, the tax is likely to affect uh, a percentage of plans in the first year, 2018, which is uh, only in the single digits. Now, that's lower than the estimates that related to the original uh, Senate uh, version of the proposal, but the new numbers are likely to be lower for, uh, for two reasons in particular. Uh, First of all, compared to the uh, Senate uh, introduced version, the enacted version made some changes to reduce the tax's impact. Uh, It provided uh, adjustments for the age and gender of a firm's workforce. It excluded dental and vision benefits from uh, uh, the amounts that are counted for purposes of whether the tax applies or not, and it also raised the thresholds. Now, an additional factor, though, beyond that is that the growth of uh, health insurance premiums in, uh, since 2010 has been less than what was expected by CBO and the Joint Committee on Taxation at the time the law was, uh, uh, was enacted. Uh, that shows up, you know, that fact, for example, shows up in the fact that the tax is now estimated by JCT to raise about two-thirds less revenue in its first two years, in 2018 and 2019, than was estimated at the time. Today, the estimate for those two years is $9 billion in additional revenues as compared to $32 billion at the, at the time of enactment. Now, I do want to say that I'm not... Uh, you know, going to argue that this particular tax, like uh, any uh, human product, is uh, perfect. There are areas uh, where some changes might be considered. I th- one of those is the issue of how the thresholds are indexed. Uh, the law provides that in the long run, except for the first year, the uh, thresholds are indexed only by the rate of growth of the consumer price index. 
which even with slower growth in health spending is likely to be less than the growth in health spending. And if that's the case, of course, the tax would potentially impact more and more plans as time goes by, and that is a, that, that is a potential concern. Paul, thank you very much. Dr. Paul Howard, we look forward to your views as well. Thank you. Um, and my doctorate is in political science, so nobody come up to me and ask me to look at your moles or anything else. <laughs> I, I can't help you. Um, I think I'd like to, to start off by, by saying that um, a couple quick top-line things. The first is don't get rid of the Cadillac tax unless you can substitute it with something that essentially does the same thing, only better. I'll explain why I think that's true in just a minute. And the other thing is I think ultimately this question, which I think might engender a little bit more agreement on the panel, is should we continue to send um, double-digit increases or something close to double-digit increases into an industry, the healthcare industry, that's deeply uncompetitive, extraordinarily expensive and wasteful, and that we know provides uh, you know, suboptimal outcomes. You know, just, just to point to one thing, you know, there's, there's consensus out there in the medical literature that seeing your doctor every year um, doesn't do the average American really any good. So in other words, although the Affordable Care Act pays for it and we tell people go get your annual physical, you really don't need that physical. Unless you're actively sick and something's wrong with you, your doctor doesn't need to see you. But we send people into the system. The doctor's going to run tests and do things. Maybe they'll find something. Maybe they'll look at it. We're spending money in a lot of areas less efficiently than we can. I think part of that's the belief that somehow fundamentally healthcare is different. It's an island where the normal laws of economics just don't apply. I don't think that's true. And I think we need to step back and look at it and say, really, do hospitals and physicians and every other member of that sector get to send on these increases to us every year and ask the fundamental question, is health insurance, where premiums for ESI, for employer-sponsored insurance, have gone up, I think, about 60% since, since 2000, somewhere around there, is healthcare 60% better? I mean, I, I can point to some places where I know it's better, but where hospitals consolidate and turn around and add a facility fee to a physician's practice they just picked up, increasing costs, is that efficiency? Every other area of the U.S. economy where there is price competition, where there's greater transparency, you're seeing um, industries get smarter, get more efficient, deliver better services, better products at the same or less cost. So I'd like to kind of frame that discussion and step back and say, what is it we really want to achieve? And is that goal to keep sending money to an industry that um, is in many ways a cartel and it's been protected by the political process and we've created a tax exclusion that funnels money into it? You know, as Paul alluded to just a minute ago, um, there was deep consensus among, elect, uh, among economists on both the left and the right that the employer tax exclusion is deeply problematic. It's arbitrary in the sense that if you happen to have a job where you get employer-sponsored coverage, uh, you get a tax benefit. If you don't, you're out of luck and you have to buy it at market prices. It's regressive in the sense that if you make more money, you get more of a benefit from the exclusion. And it's expensive insofar as when you shield spending from taxing, you're encouraging employees to take more first-dollar coverage, um, which is tax-free as opposed to deductible coverage, which is after-tax. So it encourages first-dollar coverage even for things that we could afford to buy out-of-pocket and that would drive competition in healthcare. And just you know, to put this in perspective, the median healthcare spending for the average American um, is about $700 a year. You know, that's not a catastrophic cost. Insurance should be for catastrophic costs, not for routine things. Now, the Cadillac tax may be the second or third best option. The best option might be a standardized tax deduction combined with some kind of a refundable credit for people at the low income end or people who had chronic diseases who couldn't afford to purchase insurance even in a reformed, more affordable system. But what we've got here, this third best option, is the Cadillac tax, a 40% excise tax on quote-unquote high-value plans. I think the understanding is eventually this is going to hit all plans, you know, in 10 or 15 years. I think researchers at Johns Hopkins estimate, I think by 2028 or thereabouts, it's going to hit about three-quarters of all plans, so 75% of all plans. Now, the thing is, and this is absolutely right, employers have been looking at this for a few years now and adjusting accordingly. The vice president at the National Business Group on Health said, I don't expect anyone to pay this tax. So what are employers doing? They're embracing cost transparency tools like Castlight. They're increasingly shifting employees into high deductible health plans. And according to Amitabh Chandra and her colleagues at uh, University of Chicago and Harvard, high deductible health plans have been the single biggest feature slowing the increase in private premium growth over the last decade. And they're also doing things like direct contracting, you know, looking at hospitals and saying, like, um, 
Walmart and others have done. We're going to send our cardiac patients or our organ transplant patients to the best providers in the country. We're not going to use those local hospitals that are overpriced and maybe don't have the best outcomes. And if those local hospitals want to play with us, they can come up and say, here's our data and here's our pricing. We're going to compete in that national market with um, industry-leading standards. So, in, so I think that, ironically, whether or not they, they like it, the Cadillac tax is engaging employers in a way that we haven't seen before. Traditionally, employers just have not been very good at, at holding down healthcare cost increase, increases for ESI, which have averaged you know, 5 to 7% or higher over the last 15 years. So I, I think that that's ironically a very good thing about the act. It's driving a lot of tougher conversations and for uh, employers to turn to their benefit administrators and say, what exactly are you delivering other than sending me the bill at the end of the day? And there are some very interesting things happening in the labor market in New York. Mayor de Blasio has, cut, uh, has recently signed off on contracts with a number of different unions, including the teachers' union. And part of the bargain, and you know, people can quibble about the details, but part of the bargain at least is over the next five years, we're going to set targets for health care cost growth and savings, and we're going to split those potential savings with the union. So rather than continuing to spend money increasingly on health care benefits, not wages that go into those employees' pockets, we're going to think of this as a gain-sharing exercise. And I think that's an opportunity for win-win. At the end of the day, there is broad economic consensus that that dollar of benefits is a dollar out of the employee's pocket because it's total compensation that employers look at. Now, let me just conclude with one thought, because I've probably gone longer than my time. Um, so the Cadillac tax has its flaws. It has its problems. I'm concerned about how it's going to hit health savings accounts. I'm concerned about how it's going to impact on-site uh, health clinics that employers are using to prevent people from uh, having to go to a doctor's office, take time off, have, have those kinds of adverse economic effects. And I also think we should be encouraging more choice. I mean, we shouldn't just be pushing uh, patients and people into high deductible health plans just because that happens to be the best tax strategy for the employer. We'd like to see more choice there. And at the end of the day, what we're going to have to do is make the entire healthcare system around the patient uh, and the employer much more competitive, much more transparent, much more consumer and patient focused to ensure that these consumer-directed plans actually work. So the world isn't perfect. The Cadillac tax isn't perfect. But for the most part, it's actually doing what its advocates thought it should try and achieve. Thank you. Dr. Howard, thank you very much. Tevi Troy, you'll be our last speaker, and then we'll go to questions among the panelists. Th thanks, Congressman. Th this is great. You are completely right about challenging preconceived notions, because uh, that is the closest thing you'll ever hear to a full-throated defense of ACA from Paul Howard. <laughs> so that, that was really great. Also, also an endorsement of Mayor de Blasio. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I like to confound my critics. <laughs> I, I wonder if you'll be welcomed back at Manhattan Institute when you return. Um, I, I want to make a couple of points, um, and I'm not going to get into the basic description of the tax because a lot of that was covered already. But um, the first point is that the excise tax, Cadillac tax, is a stealthy way to tax individuals. It's going to have an impact on individuals. Even though it's sold as a way to tax plans or to tax companies, it really is directed at individuals. And we did an analysis at American Health Policy Institute that said from 2018 to 2024, the excise tax could cost 12.1 million employees an average of $1,050 in higher payroll and income taxes per year if employers do what Paul V. was saying, and uh, actually increase the, the taxable wages. So if, if taxable wages are increased, that's a tax hike on, on individuals. Um, alternatively, if they don't increase wages, so that's the, the Bill Samuel thesis, um, then these employees can see up to a $6,150 reduction in their health care benefits with little or no increase in their pay. Either way, the individuals, the employees, are getting hit. And it appears that this was by design. This is not an accident or something that's a surprise to people. Um, Jonathan Gruber, in one of his infamous videos, the uh, MIT economist who uh, claimed to be the architect of the Affordable Care Act, said um, in one of the videos, we all know it's a tax on people who hold those insurance plans. That's what the goal is. It's to hit the in individuals. It's to hit the employees. And they are the ones who are getting hit. The second one, and I was really glad to hear that um, Paul already acknowledged this point, so uh, I don't have to work too hard on it, but it's uh, that, that the, the tax has a creeping nature and is going to hit more and more people over time. So uh, in 2018, our numbers say that the excise tax is anticipated to hit 17% of American businesses and 38% of large employers. 
Um, within 20 years, it's not going to be limited to just uh, high-value plans. Our estimate is that in 2031, the cost of the average family health care plan is expected to hit the excise tax threshold. Uh, Paul had another number that it's going to hit 75% of plans. This is reminiscent of the AMT, the Alternative Minimum Tax, which was originally designed to hit something like 40 people back in 1969 and then had this creeping impact, and over time it hit more and more people, including uh, millions of middle tax, uh, mi middle-class taxpayers. This, alas, was also by design, and let me quote uh, our friend Mr. Gruber again. He said, over time, it's going to apply to more and more health insurance plans. It's not a surprise anybody who was working on this law at the time knew that this is what, what's going to happen. Now, employers are already taking various actions in response to the plan. Uh, Paul Howard said that the, uh, the laws of economics to seem not to apply in health care. Well, they, they do apply with employers who have been taking steps over years, and especially over the last decade, to try and reduce the cost of uh, health care. Um, this move towards high-deductible health plans did not start with the excise tax, which we must acknowledge is not in effect yet. That's one of the things we're going to talk about today. Uh, but it's been going on for a while. So the laws of, uh, of of economics do seem to apply in the employer-sponsored health system and, and a good thing. Um, Paul V, I get confused with all the Pauls here, um, <laughs> said that uh, in the end of the day it's going to affect a few businesses. If so, that's because employers are already acting to avoid the excise tax. In fact, one uh, employer in an unguarded moment said to me he believes that only idiots will pay the excise <laughs> tax. It is a 40% hit on anything above the threshold, and so they are going to act not to pay that tax, and the way they're going to do it is they're going to reduce the value of their health care offerings to employees, to individuals. They're real people at the end of that decision. Uh, the fourth thing is I think we should expect changes to the tax. I, I think it's interesting that we have bipartisan opposition to the tax, uh, both uh, Republicans and Democrats. We also have, uh, as we see on this panel, so, uh, some union people and, and uh, business people also seem to oppose the tax. So I think there's a good chance that something happens. Um, uh, Congressman Courtney from Connecticut has a bipartisan bill to get rid of it with over 100 co-sponsors. And um, one of the reasons I think it may be uh, relatively easy or easier than originally anticipated to get rid of it is because of a point that uh, Paul V was making, uh, which is about the JCT, the um, Joint Committee on Taxation, estimate uh, that it's going to bring in two-thirds less revenue than anticipated. Usually it's hard to get rid of tax hikes because the revenue estimates that, that, that JCT or the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, says they're going to bring in are what – uh, lead to uh, the need for offsets. So the offsets have to be either spending cuts or, or, or additional tax hikes. Those are unpopular, so it's hard to get rid of taxes. If this truly brings in much less revenue than originally anticipated, it's going to be easier to get rid of than, than originally thought. So, so expect some changes here. But let me put out a warning to Congress and to those congressional staffers out there. This thing goes into effect in 2018. If Congress does what it normally does and waits until December 31st, 2017 at 11.59 to get rid of it, it will already be too late because employers will have already factor that into their plans, and it will have the impact on employees that we are trying to avoid. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, I appreciate all the panelists, and just pick up where Tevi left off for a moment, that um, this is an issue that's affecting decisions today. Whether it is collective bargaining negotiations across the country, we've heard two examples, the, the, the longshoremen in the West Coast, the teachers in New York City, whether it is HR uh, directors and, and, and leaders in companies making decisions today, whether it is uh, various decision makers in the healthcare field, they are making decisions today. And if Congress um, believes that this is like the doc fix or the fiscal cliff or some of the things where you can wait until the very last moment before making a decision, that's a false assumption because of the behavioral changes already taking place. Speaking of behavioral changes, um, when members of Congress have town meetings, you, you, after a while you sort of get to know certain people by name who follow you around to your town meetings. <laughs> and they are not groupies, I have to tell you this. They, they are people who enjoy the idea that for the next hour or so they can attack everything that you said uh, because that's your job to listen. So I am relishing the opportunity for the next couple of minutes to, to go to each of our panelists and attack uh, different things that they have said without well, any... We've never been groupies. So. Without, <laughs> without any sense of accountability on my own. So here, here goes. Um, Dr. Howard, um, 
one of your arguments about the benefits of the Cadillac tax, the excise tax, is that it is starting conversations among decision makers about more creative ways to reduce health care costs. Why don't we just start reducing health care costs in more creative ways? Wouldn't it be better, rather than this uh, inappropriate proxy that some would argue that it is, wouldn't it be better to subsidize behaviors or encourage behaviors that get to the providers of health care, get to the actual supply chain, which is the problem? Wouldn't it be better to get rid of this tax? And let me use one, one idea that sort of flows from your testimony. Um, this pre-tax versus post-tax dollar distinction for individual contributions. Shouldn't we just make all health care spending pre-tax for both employers and employees and then let the market play out how that responsibility is allocated and get rid of this tax? That's a good Manhattan Institute argument, isn't it? Right. Um, let me see if I can take that up. So I think, um, and feel free to challenge me here, but one of the, the issues we're thinking about here is that um, this is about a $200 billion exclusion from the tax code. It's the largest single exclusion that we've got from the tax code. Um, like the mortgage tax deduction, um, it's something that keeps going up. And this is, you know, why do we have this industry operating this way? Why would we want to extend subsidies to an entire industry that we wouldn't extend and say, hey, you know what, consumer electronics are fantastic. We want people to buy more consumer electronics. That's a terrific industry. Let's subsidize all those purchases, too. Now, the reason we haven't gone at this before, and interestingly, during the 2008 election, let's remember that, that um, Senator John McCain then said, you know what, we're going to have a flat tax credit for health insurance. And President Obama said, you know, he attacked him quite, quite uh, ardently and said, you are trying to tax health insurance benefits for the first time. Um, the Cadillac tax obviously actually does that. Um, but the reason we haven't had a more direct um, attempt to kind of go at this problem, uh, you know, was uh, 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 explained to me in, in a quip by a former CBO director who said, you know, every congressional district in America has physicians and hospitals that benefit directly from this exclusion. And obviously they want more money. They want higher rates. Um, and despite the fact that they're always crying penury, somehow hospitals keep expanding and keep charging more, even though fewer and fewer people actually use inpatient hospital services. So what we want to do at the margins is say to people, look, um, health insurance should be reserved for catastrophic spending primarily. We want to encourage um, cost-effective health care spending, and we can think of really interesting ways to do that. You know, there's one actual carve-out for health savings accounts for drugs for chronic or preventive illnesses. We can think about other services that actually stave off increased health care costs in the long run. But we don't want to say continue to purchase things at the margins that you're not saying, you know, after, after tax dollars, you get to say, I want to spend it on housing, or I want to spend it on food or vacation. I have to make decisions about exactly how much I want to spend. And that entails trade-offs that force efficiency on those providers to deliver those services at lower, lower cost or higher quality. We're not demanding that of the health care industry to the same extent. And ultimately, yes, it is the, the individual who we want to make those decisions, because those are the, the people who make decisions about whether or not to see a doctor or what kind of services to get, and those are exactly the people we want to engage. But is it your position that you said that this is the third best way to do this? Why shouldn't we try to pass the first or the second? Well, if we could, I'd be happy to do that. So if we wanted to move to, you okay. know, a number of the, the Republican bills that are quote-unquote repeal and replace actually do look at standardizing the deduction or offering a tax credit. We will credit. put you down as a co-sponsor of repeal then. The, um, <laughs> Bill Samuel, um, you're talking about the the port, the long shirt. This is how we did things in there. Um, this is just like congressional. This is how they're trying to pass the trade bill this week, Bill. The, the, um, you talked about the longshoreman negotiations, talked about how there was originally some thought about limiting the contract to three years so it would end before, or two and a half years, I guess, so it would end before 2018. But as I understand, they did five years. Isn't that evidence that the collective bargaining process will work around this problem? And although you may not like the outcome, that it's not going to paralyze collective bargaining. The fact that they were able to do five years, doesn't that mean it's not that big of a threat to collective bargaining? Well, in the case of the longshore workers at work, the longshore workers happen to be a very powerful union, partly because they can shut down the ports, which in turn shuts down uh, the economy. That's why we have the Taft-Hartley Act and the, the possibility of injunctions in, in those cases. I don't know that it's been used in any other 
instance, maybe the steel workers strike in the 1940s. So, sure, if every union was as powerful as the longshore workers and every industry was, you know, sort of e equally, uh, uh, you know, bargaining among equals, we, we could probably find a way around this. But if you're a public sector worker in uh, Cincinnati or uh, a steel worker in Pittsburgh, um, you're, you're dealing with very powerful corporations, global corporations, and as we've seen over the past 20 to 25 years, your health care costs are going up, your wages are going down, uh, and it's not at all the, the, the kind of result that um, you, you, you're pointing out happened in, uh, on the West Coast. Um, Tevi, the, aren't you being um, a little pessimistic about the creative abilities of corporate America? Um, I mean, you've heard Paul, Paul H., make the point that um, this tax has raised the price of not being creative. It's really said to employers and, and employees around the country that if you're going to buy a health insurance policy that it costs more than a certain amount of money, there, there's a significant penalty attached to that. So why don't you try a lot of different creative ways to bring down the cost? Why don't you try, uh, as Walmart has, sending people to hospitals with better results or uh, giving employees more skin in the game so they become more able consumers or, or better education. It, uh, won't, won't creative people in the marketplace work within the parameters of this tax and solve the problem without it being repealed? Yeah, I, I wouldn't call myself pessimistic about employers' ability to, to make changes. I call myself either optimistic or, or realistic. I, th I think they are acting uh, quite aggressively to make changes. Again, before the excise tax even goes into place, they are looking for ways to reduce costs. Um, we did a study at the American Health Policy Institute that looked at the cost, the marginal costs of the ACA to large employers, and we found that the the ACA in marginal dollars will cost the employer something like 160 to $200 million over a 10-year period. Um, and that's just ACA costs. So employers recognize that there are more and more costs being imposed on them, that uh, it, it is an expensive proposition to provide health care to employees, and, and they're looking at ways to to change it. I just think that the uh, the excise tax is, puts an arbitrary dollar limit and puts a confiscatory 40% level on uh, on where the, the government deems the changes to be appropriate, and, and I just don't think that's the right way of going about would, it. Would more robust indexing, which which Paul Vanderwater suggested, would that fix the problem if this is this this level was indexed to some realistic escalator? Uh, I, I think more robust in indexing would, would be a good thing. I'd, li I'd like to see that, but but I'd also like to see the. Um, I, I just don't think you should have that forty percent hit if you go over the level. Maybe maybe just stop. Um, stop uh, the deduction, so make it no, no longer deductible after that certain level. I think I'd be more comfortable with that. Do you think there's a, a, a substantive difference between levying an excise tax and simply ending a deduction? Is that an important distinction? I, I think it is. I mean, that 40% number is, is something that I, I know for a fact scares employers because I talk to them about it, and they say they're, they're going to do everything they can to not hit that level. And some of them are saying if we want to not hit that level in 2018, we need to start in our 2015 plan and our 2016 plan to start uh, slowly reducing the value of our health care offerings so that we don't hit our employees with a big drop in one single calendar year and they say, what the heck happened? And this way, they're kind of, it's, it's a little like boiling the frog. They're taking mm -hmm. it away a little bit at a time. And let me just like fatal attraction. Let me just I, I do agree with Tevi about that in terms of um, much like the system that preceded it, the Cadillac tax is regressive. So that 40% tax is about where the highest marginal income tax rate is right now. Yeah. And if you shifted to a straight up just, you know, everything above the, that cap is just that normal income, you'd have people obviously getting lower rates. Well, let's get to that question of regressive versus progressive with Paul Vanderwater. Um, one of your arguments, Paul, is that the Affordable Care Act was designed to reduce the deficit. CBO would say that it has. OMB would say that it has. And it, one of the ways it has done that is to collect the revenue from, uh, uh, t eventually to collect the revenue from the excess. Call, let me just stop with that point for a minute. Of course, none of the deficit reduction thus far is attributable to the excess tax, is it? Because they haven't started collecting it yet. Not yet, right. Okay. So we really don't know what impact the excise tax will have on deficit reduction based on real data yet, right? Right. We can project, but we don't know. We do know that there have been actual data since fiscal 2010 about the rest of it. Let me come back to my main question. Um, so you said that to pay for the expanded coverage and do the rest, that the excise tax is one of the revenue raises. Isn't it a really regressive means of raising revenue? What, what this is really doing is saying that 
uh, police officers, firefighters, teachers, uh, iron workers have, who have given up wages or other benefits in exchange for health benefits are going to pay a higher tax for that decision that they've made. Wouldn't it be far more efficient to simply expand the income, the supplemental income tax increase that the Affordable Care Act had in it instead of doing this? Um, when, when the Affordable Care Act was being considered, and you probably remember this, uh, there, were, you know, there were discussions of various ways to uh, limit uh, the, ex the, the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance. And one of the ways that was discussed was uh, somehow or other tying that limitation to a person's income. Um, but through the vagaries of the political process, that wasn't the approach that was uh, adopted. I suspect in part because there are other elements of the Affordable Care Act that did particularly focus on upper income individuals, you know, particularly uh, the uh, higher uh, Medicare tax, both on earnings and on, on, on under-earned income. Do you think the strongest argument for the tax is its revenue-raising assets or its cost-control assets? Well, if I had to choose, I think they're both important, but if I had to choose one, I'd choose the latter, the cost control aspect. What evidence is there that, that the looming uh, tax imposition 2018 has had an effect on premiums? Is there any empirical evidence that it's, it's helped so far? Well, as we've, you know, we've, we've heard the discussion, these discussions that people have been talking about, the longshoremen, the other example, the teachers that Paul Howard cited, <coughs> these are exactly cases in point. But the costs are being shifted. They're not necessarily disappearing. They're being shifted to workers. They're picking up the additional costs that were once absorbed by the employer. So how is that a, a fair solution? Well, the, 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 well all of, all of the, the evidence suggests that to the extent that people have to pay more for something, in this case for health care, they're going to reduce their utilization somewhat. And is that a good thing? I, 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 I fail to... I mean, no one's shown well, me again, that Americans are overutilizing health care. And, in fact, if, they're, if it costs more, they're gonna, more of them are going to end up in the emergency room spending more money. But we have, we've, we've forgotten, though, <coughs> the fact that the tax, at least to start out with, the reason we call it a Cadillac tax is because the whole purpose is to focus on the plans which have uh, relatively high benefits compared to other plans. So we're not talking about, um, you, know, uh, you know, turning uh, Cadillac plans into... Uh, you know, into, into very low-quality plans. These are still going to be, uh, you know, plans that cover a substantial amount of uh, health care spending. We, we, I'll just say we call it Cadillac plans because somebody came up with that name and it's stuck. I'm not sure I right. would acknowledge it, that. But let me, what, one of the other unf unfair a a attributes here we haven't talked about is the great geographic disparity. So a, a, a teacher in New York City uh, hits the cap, uh, a $40,000 a year teacher hits the cap, has... Co-pays, uh, uh, higher co-pays and deductibles forced on them by the city, whereas an engineer in Utah with the exact same plan doesn't hit the cap because the insurance market there is more efficient. Let me just, lower just ask, so and I know, doing about the Paul, you want to say something, then I want to ask a question when you're done that goes to Bill's question. But did well, you I want just to wanted to, um, you know, there, there is a lot of empirical evidence out there from Dartmouth University and others that a lot of, you know, there's just enormous, ridiculous cost variation uh, across the U.S., some of it's obviously attributable to geographic influences. Other is just practice patterns, where they'll even look at a, a hospital in a city and look at one across the street providing the same service to basically the same. There's news this week about Florida and, and Medicare billing that came out that's mm -hmm. very compelling. On Absolutely. Team. And so these researchers said, you know, it's utilization. It's overutilization. Yeah. So I, there's an awful lot of that. You but who's can paying the correct, to correct that? Not the, not the providers, the consumers. Well, but let's, let's in, look in at the case it. Of the excess but, but look. Everybody pays. I mean, for healthcare, everybody pays. So when no, for when, the, to when correct it? No, no. Actually, about the let's say pre-ACA, who pays? The the employee pays because any cost increase in their benefits year over year is coming out of their wages or potential wage increases or their pension, right? Um, so the employee may not know that because they don't see that. Um, they they sure will now. They sure will now. Yeah. And that decision, you know, every every. Every year to see that happen to those middle class families and say, hey, you know what, that's going to a system that's not efficient, that's extraordinarily expensive, and we ought to do something about that. That's the conversation we're beginning to so have. So let's think about another conversation. It is, uh, it is a Thursday morning in late June. Your phone rings at the office, and it's Speaker Boehner. <laughs> and he that's says, That's never going to happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised, Bill. 
Um, I got those calls. I see you. I didn't like them. (laughs) And he says, well, now that the court has ruled for the plaintiffs in King versus Burwell, we have an opportunity to rewrite the ACA. And I'm calling you uh, to ask you what we should do about the excise tax, that specific issue as we rewrite the ACA. And on hold is Dennis McDonough, who wants to ask you the same question. And Mitch McConnell is due in your office in an hour to ask you the same question as well. Tevi, what, what would you say in answer to that question? <laughs> do I have to give all three of them the same answer? <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Look, look, I mean, this is a little... Um, I guess a little off, off the topic of the excise tax per se. Um, I, I think. Well, I do want to know about the I, excise right. tax per se. Uh, so, so, uh, so just broadly about King versus Burwell, um, I, I don't think it's clear where the court's going to end up. So I don't know if that call on a Thursday morning is going to come. Um, if the if they rule with the defendants, obviously there there's no change in things per, proceed. And I would tell Speaker Boehner that uh, um, you continue with whatever plans you have put on hold for the last six months while waiting for this court decision to happen. Um, if it if they go with the uh, plaintiffs and um, there's a lot of tumult in the market, then um, then most of the Republican plans have looked at either finding some way to extend the, um, the subsidies for the short term, but with some kind of cutoff date, or to find some way to increase uh, state uh, flexibility in order to, uh, to, to deal with creating exchanges that, that don't have to necessarily deal with the ACA uh, mandates and requirements. Um, I, I don't think either of those really are applicable to the excise tax, and, and I think the excise tax will be a side conversation. I, I, th- I thought the way the excise tax would come up in this session of Congress would be um, I think the Republicans are talking about sending up different aspects of the ACA to, uh, to the president to see which ones he will uh, sign, which ones he, he will veto. And because the excise tax has bipartisan opposition to it, I think it's, uh, it's one of the more realistic candidates for seeing if you can get a vote through the House and then, uh, then uh, where it's easier because the Republicans have the majority, uh, more difficult through the Senate. But if you have right. Democrats on board, it potentially could be uh, passed through as a standalone um, and then go to President Obama's Paul, house and see if what he'd do. If you got that call, would you use the excise? Would you keep the excise tax to pay for these uh, new form of subsidies that would be required? Well, the, the excise tax currently is paying for current Obamacare subsidies. So, you know, I don't know where where CBO would come on this. Is it a wash? I I don't know. I mean, I think what look, if you were to say to me, what would you do, de novo? Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, let's go for a straight up cap you know, with some kind of blended tax deduction for, uh, mm-hmm. credit for people to lower income. And if you tell me to start over, that's probably what I do. Because, again, this is a, a third best solution. But to recognize that some discipline on the market, like every other market in America, has to happen. If we want to slow the impact of this and the cost of health care is eroding employer-covered insurance, fewer employers can afford to offer it, fewer employees can afford to buy it, and it's driving up the cost of everything, uh, uh, goods and services, wage and labor. So let's find a way to fix the problem uh, perhaps in a better way than we've done before. Okay. Paul, what would you say? I'd say keep it. Mm-hmm. And would you change it in any way? Would, would you make any modifications to it? Oh, if we were facing that uh, prospect, certainly, I, I mean, uh, I'd focus more on dealing with the coverage issues than with the, uh, with the excise tax. But mm-hmm. if some changes in the structure speeded the package along, I certainly wouldn't object. Bill, what would you say? Well, I'd certainly scrap the excise tax, but I might take the uh, opportunity to say, let's scrap the ACA. I've got a great substitute, which is Medi- Medicare for all or single mm-hmm. payer. Mm-hmm. Only panelists who said that. <laughs> <laughs> so no, far. It's worth considering. We'd be so back on our yeah. idea. Well, here's a, just one other question, and then we're going to go to the audience for questions. Um, if we were to reconvene 10 years from now, God willing, we are all healthy in here. So it's 2025. Uh, do you think the tax will still be in effect in 2025 or will it be substantially modified? Bill, what do you think? I think, it'll be, I think it'll be either delayed once again, like the SDR for the 15th time. How many years? Uh, 750 years, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> <I> think it <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or it, won't be in, it won't exist anymore. Methuselah was the original author of the doc fix, as I remember. <laughs> Paul, what do you think? Well, I hope that it, like other elements of the Affordable Care Act, will still be here, but will be modified as we learn how to do things even better. 
What do you think, Paul? I, I think some version of it will still be here. I think we're going to continue the evolution away from um, uh, this paternalistic employer system where, you know, they give you this thing to a consumer-led system where you're getting something, but you have to make more smart decisions about how you're going to utilize your care. And Tabby? So I, I think the excise tax goes, but it's interesting that you mentioned 2025. We just put out a study at the American Health Policy Institute that talks about some of the uh, converging problems that America's facing in 2025. Well, and, I mentioned uh, it. And, uh, <laughs> and 50, so 54% of Americans currently get their health care through their employers, 169 million, and about 33% get it through, um, uh, through some form of government subsidy. And both those systems are facing real challenges. The Medicare trust fund, for example, is going bankrupt in, in that, right around that period. Um, the uh, Me- Medicaid uh, spending is going to be over a trillion dollars by then. It's the largest aggregate item on state budgets. You've got the, um, uh, the employers, uh, according to Zeke Emanuel, who's, again, one of the architects on the inside of, of the government of the ACA, said that he thinks only 20% of employers will be providing health care for their employees in 2025. So uh, within 10 years, there are going to be some massive changes and challenges to the health care system. And I think the excise tax, um, while problematic, is really a, a side issue f- compared to some of these massive changes and disruptions that we're facing. Great. We have uh, 15 minutes set aside for questions. There's people with microphones. Could you raise your hand if you have the microphone? If you'd like to ask us a question, please raise your hand. We'll bring the microphone to you. If you want to address it to a specific panelist, please do so. And again, we're asking for questions, not speeches, if we could. Who'd like to begin? Looks like we've convinced everyone of our position. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> All of our positions, that's right. Yes, ma'am. The lady here in the third row. time with the CBO analysis and, and, and uh, scoring. And they just did from January baseline to March baseline a huge drop without very much of an explanation, especially on the Cadillac piece of it. And you heard here today that employers are going to try to not pay it because they don't get any benefit from paying the 40% tax. And yet the prior CBO score said that one-fourth of the revenues were coming from receipts for the tax. So three-quarters was Well, like like all estimates, it may turn out not to be correct. But as uh, you know, the various panelists have pointed out. I mean, the you know em- employers can respond to the tax in one of two ways: either they can leave their health plans structured the way they otherwise would have been, and to the extent that they exceed the thresholds, pay the tax, which generates revenues. Or if they restructure their health plans to stay below the thresholds, then uh, over a period of a few years, it generates additional taxable earnings, which also generates revenue. And I, one thing I think needs to be clear that these, the, both the old and the updated revenue estimates that CBO and the Joint Committee on Taxation produce includes both of those sources of revenues. So it's, it, the, the estimate includes the additional revenues that arise because you have more taxable compensation and less uh, tax-exempt compensation. Well, but again, I think the, the, the estimate is, you know, is fairly uh, straightforward. There are, you know, we have data on distribution of premiums. I think Tevi in his paper for mm-hmm. the American Health Policy Institute cites the, the Kaiser data, for example. Um, there, there are other data available through the uh, insurance component of the um, Medical Expenditure Panel Survey, uh, MEPS. So, and they're not, they're not exactly the same, but we have data. Then you, then you have to make projections of how much, you know, the rate at which premiums are going to grow between now and 2018 and thereafter. But I would say that this is, you know, on the scale of complexity of the estimates, this, this doesn't, doesn't rate a 10. One, uh, one point in defense of CBO that in, in looking at this, uh, when there was a big debate about the bill as to whether the CBO estimates were about right or not, 
the C on three major pieces of healthcare legislation, two that led up to this, the CBO was too conservative in its prediction of, uh, too liberal in its prediction of cost. It cost less. The uh, the DRG reforms that I believe President Reagan did in, in the late uh, 19s would have been the early 1980s. Uh, they that actually saved more than it was supposed to. The the cost estimate for Medicare Part D in, in 2003. It wound up costing quite a bit less than CBO said that it would. And frankly, what's happened with the Affordable Care Act is that it has reduced the deficit by more than was projected, the way CBO scores it. So I do tend to think they're, they're right on the good side of the ledger. Uh, they're wrong on the good side of the ledger, I should say. It tends to be a better effect on the deficit. Let me add other can, questions. Can I just actually jump, sure. jump in on that point, a couple of points? Uh, you, know, you know, CBO, uh, if they get their estimate uh, too far north or too far south, it's still, it's still wrong. Um, so uh, <laughs> there, there is that issue. But um, in terms of the, the point you were making um, and, and on, on Pulse Point, um, you know, we, we did cite the Kaiser data. It doesn't necessarily mean we agree with the, the CBO projection. And we actually uh, mm -hmm. made when the CBO projection was still $120 billion in revenue for what the tax is bringing in. They subsequently reduced we said that we, we think it's going to be probably more like a third of that, maybe $40 billion in revenue over a 10-year period, which, which really isn't that great. And I do want to uh, give a quick shout-out to uh, Mark Wilson, the economist, who is the co-author of the paper, who's in the audience today. Yeah. So thank you, Mark. Yeah, thank you, Mark, for a lot that you've written on this. has been extremely helpful as we prepared for today in particular. Let me ask you a question of, of the audience. Again, questions are welcome, but um, Congress, it was mentioned earlier for years, would routinely extend the dock fix situation, the SGR cuts, and it, it never really took effect. For many, many years, we would push the uh, uh, alternative minimum tax line forward. How many people here think that's what Congress is poised to do on this tax, that it will be sort of postponed and pushed forward? Uh, just for a show of hands, how many people think that's going to happen when we get to 2018? How many people think they'll just leave it alone when we get to 2018, just let it sit there and be collected? How many people think it'll be repealed? Yeah, pretty divided room. It's a pretty divided room here. One interesting thing about this is that the political views on this within the Congress are as diverse as the panel is today, too, so it's very, very hard to predict what it is. Does anybody have any further questions from the audience? Yes, uh, gentleman in the back on the left here. And then, Colleen, did you have a question? So this can go to any panelist on the table. So my main question is we do have the, the threshold of $10,000, $10,200 for single coverage and $27,500 for family coverage. Why are we not setting that tax rather on actuarial value of the insurance plans? So if we really have a 90% AV or 90 AV where it really is a Cadillac-esque premium plan, why aren't we taxing that and using that as a threshold rather than these arbitrary numbers that, which um, Mr. Waters has said, is kind of scary because with the CPI index, there's also the medical um, industry cost increases that will in turn really make those numbers not really effective. Great question. What do people think of that issue? Paul? Well, I think it's, it's uh, certainly an interesting uh, suggestion. Um, we do have to think about administrative issues uh, you know, we somewhat blithely talk about actuarial value, but actually it turns out, of course, that estimating actuarial value, like most such things, isn't quite as straightforward as you might think. Um, uh, so I'd, I'd ra raise a practical question. That's not a reason not to do it. I think it's, 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 it's an idea that's, that's definitely worth thinking about. Anyone else? Well, I mean, that's a little bit like the structure of Medicare Part D, right, which has essentially a 75% government subsidy and then 25%, I think, out-of-pocket premiums for seniors. And there are protected classes of drugs in there, and, and you can talk about other things like that. But, no, no. you know, that, that's one approach that exactly like um, uh, Rob has just mentioned that actually did turn out to be extraordinarily effective. I'll just say I'm not a fan of the excise tax, so I'm not inclined to defend the way they did it. <laughs> uh, Colleen, did you have your hand up? Wait one sec for the mic. Just wait for the microphone. Then there's a, a hand in the back as well on the right. So under the scenario of it either being repealed or postponed, like another dock fix, there's clearly a bogey that the federal government's trying to hit. So then what? What are your thoughts on, you know, where would other revenues potentially come from if this doesn't move forward? The dock fix was almost never paid for. 
Um, it was always Actually, just. That's, no, that's, that's not true. In most cases, it usually it was, was paid for. In, in I always remember sort of up, dancing up with the, the baseline. Up to the very end. I mean, the final permanent yeah. solution, as you were saying yourself, Two was thirds largely not paid unpaid for. for yeah. But the temporary fixes were almost all paid for. Mm-hmm. And I guess these would be small enough, Paul, that they could fit into that sort of cats and dogs category of revenue that usually is sitting around mm-hmm. someone's maybe, desk. Maybe. I would warn all of you in the, in the room, do not be a cat or a dog. Uh, <laughs> there's, there, there is, there's a list the Senate Finance Committee has, the House Ways and Means Committee has, that are, quote, easy sources of revenue until it's your industry or your field or your company. So don't get on that list. The, the, the labor movement has a lot of ideas about raising revenue, probably that wouldn't be popular in this room, but ending overseas deferral, raising taxes on the super rich. We, we could find uh, how much money? $40 million? Yeah. Oh, No problem at all. Higher drug rebates in Medicare? We had a hand in the back on the right. Uh, Henry had the researcher now. I, I wondered uh, what percent of total plans are considered Cadillac plans. A great deal of you know union negotiated agreements uh, result in ex- excess spending on medical as a way to keep the show on the road and to negotiate another yearly contract with the union. Uh, this is something that I've seen in the past. I wondered. You know, is this going to reduce the number of so-called Cadillac plans to, to a much lower quantity uh, than perhaps what we have on the books right now? Debbie, I think you have done some research on that, haven't you? Uh, we've done some stats. I mentioned earlier that we think 17% of uh, businesses will be hit with this tax and uh, 38% of large businesses. So obviously the large companies are more likely to have plans that are considered Cadillac plans. But as I said, over time it's going to hit more and more businesses. So this definition of Cadillac is going to be quite expansive. I agreed with Bill's assessment earlier that the use of the word Cadillac is just a word somebody came up with uh, to make a, a compelling shorthand political point that wasn't necessarily accurate regarding the type of plans that were going to be hit. And as I said earlier, that Tebby's estimate is much, much higher than what's implicit in the CBO and JCT numbers. Yes, gentlemen here on the left. Our left. Going back to the question of the inflation rate built into the excise tax, there's also various floor mandates in the Affordable Care Act. There's minimum essential benefits. There's 60% AV mandate for employers. At some point, it seems, there will not be a plan that meets those floor requirements without hitting the excise tax. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that and, and where the system might go from there? Paul? Well, depending upon your estimates, that's going to be quite some time in the future. So. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to spend a minute worrying about that issue. I saw, Tevi, was it in your data that you had, it was a 2031 when the average plan would hit the tax? Yeah, when it hits the average value plan. So, uh, yeah, I, I will spend time worrying about it. I mean, look, it's an issue. On the one hand, the uh, Affordable Care Act requires, um, has mandates that make, uh, you, ha- you must make your health insurance uh, more expensive, more valuable, so that people can uh, be meeting the, the, the requirements of the ACA. On the other hand, there's this excise tax. So there is this, uh, we're calling it this narrow band in which um, insurance can, can be provided. And you know, I'm not sure mm-hmm. the government should be dictating what the appropriate levels of, uh, of health insurance that an employer uh, provides uh, are. And, um, and if they were, I'd be much more inclined to see some kind of system where uh, if you had an individual mandate, it would be some kind of a catastrophic plan. So that, like in Singapore, where everybody has to have catastrophic level, and then the government doesn't get as involved in, in these mandates and requirements on top of it. And mm-hmm. can I also suggest that we're, sure. we don't know what the practice of medicine is going to look like in, in 10 years in a really fundamentally mm. different way. Um, there's a great book out by Eric Topol, The Patient Will See You Now. now. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. It talks about the democratization of medicine, how uh, information is flowing to smartphones and apps and wearables in a way that's going to make, uh, and of course, the, the price of genomic testing has fallen about a million times since the unravel, uh, deciphering of the human genome back in 2000. That's going to be a game changer in terms of being able to predict much more precisely um, who actually needs intense management or treatment? Are they responding to the treatment that they're, that they're giving you? And which providers are actually delivering the best bang for the buck? And that might be a nurse provider. Uh, it could be CVS. We don't know. So yeah. if we allow that much more exper- experimentation, what we think of as you know, uh, the best coverage might change radically. I, uh, that's such an inc- incredibly important point that I remember the huge fight that took place in 1992 
over telecommunications reform. The cable people and the baby bells and these obscure little companies that were doing stuff out in Silicon Valley. And we, we thought when we passed that 1992 statute that we had sort of, you know, set the template for telecommunications for the next century probably. Well, <laughs> you know, a, a decade later, the law was, the, 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 the market that the law purported to regulate no longer existed at all. And I do think healthcare may be headed for that kind of, of paradigmatic change, which, which makes me think that all of these questions deserve to be looked at very carefully as time goes on. Uh, because you're right, the, the, the provider of healthcare might be a totally different entity than it is right now. Uh, let me just conclude by thanking again the Hudson Institute for uh, hosting this forum, making it possible, facilitating it. And I, I want to thank all the panelists. I especially want to thank Tevi, um, who really was the driving force in putting this together and whose uh, personal credibility helped attract such a great group of people to be a part of it. I hope you would join me in thanking all four of the panelists for the great job that they did today. <laughs>